All right, if you would turn, please, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. The Gospel of Mark chapter 6. We're continuing this morning in our series, Mark's Biblical Answers to Puzzling Questions. We pose the question this morning, how does one deal with rejection? Mark chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 1. And he went out from thence, and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he had laid his hands upon a few sick folk, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. Once again, as we have seen already throughout the Gospel of Mark, a flurry of activity is recorded in this chapter. The events of chapter 6 include Christ rejected by his countrymen. Christ gives the twelve power over unclean spirits in verses 7 through 13. Verses 14 through 29, we have the account of John the Baptist's death. Then we have the apostles returning from their preaching campaign in verses 30, 31, and 32. Then verses 33 through 44, we have Mark's record of the feeding of the 5,000. And then the last verses, 45 through 56, we see the account of Christ walking on the water. Something we note about this particular instance is that Jesus' hometown was harsh with him. Most of his neighbors could never accept the fact he was the Messiah. The idea that a person from among their midst could really be the, the true Messiah, the Son of God, was beyond their comprehension. There were some who were more envious and jealousy of the prominence and esteem he had achieved, and unacceptance, unbelief, and rumors about him were widespread among his own people, and their unbelief led them to do some terrible things. Some in the city tried to kill him. Some friends and neighbors considered him mad or insane. And then his own family members were extremely embarrassed by his claims and the rumors surrounding him. Someone has said, The most severe critics of a man's life and work are, of course, those who have always known him. And isn't it true, the people who know us best can sometimes be the greatest help or the harshest critics. Jesus left behind him the city of Capernaum and returned to his hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth was the city where he grew up as a child and as a young man. And note the folks didn't flock to meet him when he approached the city as they did in so many other locations. From all indications, he had no opportunity to preach while here or teach until the Sabbath later in the week. When the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And 
His teaching was both powerful and impressive, so much so that many were astonished and amazed at the ability and the force with which he spake. Now, no doubt, we've all in, or will encounter rejection from those we, around us as we choose to follow the Lord. And uh, it's just a part of life. Some people believe us, some people don't. Some people agree with us, some people disagree. Here we have a record of how Jesus conducted himself in one instance when he was faced with rejection and thus has given us an example that we can follow pertaining to this subject. So we're going to look at two things this morning and we'll be brief here. But first we're going to consider how to recognize rejection and then secondly we'll consider how to respond to rejection. And again, we're actually looking at all six of these verses in connection with this first thought, recognizing rejection. This passage gives us insight as to how people in that area felt about Christ, and it identified three specific characteristics of those who rejected him. We'll look at those three things. First, we notice in verses 2 and 3, there were some who questioned his authority. Notice verse 2, the middle there, says, from thence, They ask questions, from whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? The third question, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? And then the fourth question, are not his sisters here with us? Some questioned Jesus' source of authority. To them, he didn't have the right credentials and education. He was from a human and humble beginning. Now, there was no denying, these people acknowledged, there was no denying that he had performed many wonderful works elsewhere, and he was a mighty speaker and an excellent teacher. They recognized this wisdom and power that had been given to him was bestowed upon him. For it says, what wisdom is this which is given unto him? Their problem was, they didn't know or didn't understand that wisdom came from the Lord. They didn't know where it came from, and they didn't know how he ended up with it. So their questions were good ones. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. In fact, we're admonished in Scripture when you hear a new teaching or a new doctrine, a new idea, that we are to listen and to question it. 1 John chapter 4 reminds us to try the spirits whether they be of God. Too many people are easily fooled by something because it's new, it sounds good, it's impressive, and it draws attention. As a result, many are led astray. Now, I know many have been attributed with saying this. I've heard that it was Charles Spurgeon or others. Whoever the case, they said, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. We need to be careful about new ideas that come down the pike. That was the situation here. This was a new event. This was, uh, this was a new ordeal for these people. And they were questioning where Jesus got his authority. The problem was they couldn't coincide the two. He grew up in humble, poor surroundings. He was the son of a carpenter. He could not be the son of God. Because they were not willing to acknowledge he had personally 
gained this information from God or this power from God, it caused them great harm and great loss in the long run. For example, Luke's account of this in chapter 4, verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on a Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there were delivered unto him a book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and here we have him quoted, the, him speaking, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then the scripture tells us he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Imagine, you have his neighbors, his family, people he grew up around. They've sat and heard him speak. They've sat and heard him read the scripture. And now they're just staring at him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Do you realize what Jesus was saying there? Reading the scripture saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's talking about himself. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so on. He said, This prophecy is fulfilled in me. Now, a lot of folks would have been thrilled to hear that. They would have been excited to think, I'm sitting in the presence of the Messiah. Here the prophets of the, of the prophet of old is being fulfilled right in front of my very eyes. These people wouldn't have it. They wouldn't listen. They said, it can't be true. Well, we know, of course, that it was true. We see Jesus' instruction later in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30, wherein he said, I and my Father are one. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. Get this. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe me not, believe the works that, thou, that you may know, and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. He said, you have to look at the works. Forget about the fact that I'm a carpenter's son. Forget about the fact that I'm from Nazareth. Forget about the fact that to you, I am a nobody, with no education and no significant religious background. But look at the works. Look at what I have done for my Father and by his power and strength. Well, the problem was with Jesus' family and friends and countrymen. They merely saw a working man, a carpenter. Jesus lacked the qualifications needed to satisfy the expectations of those around him. So in this matter of rejection, they wouldn't accept him. 
because they questioned his claims. They questioned his authority. As Christians, people will question our claims. They will question our authority. I don't stand before you this morning speaking based on my own authority. I stand before you based on the authority of the Word of God. We declare unto you, thus saith the Lord. Whatever your background is, as a servant of the Lord, God chooses to use whom he will. And it ought not to matter if you don't have a Bible background. It shouldn't matter if you haven't been saved for a number of decades. It shouldn't matter if you haven't memorized half the Word of God. And it doesn't. Beloved, if we know this is the Word of God, we can hold it up before others and declare, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. And we believe it. And we are doing our best to deliver this message to others. But there will be those who reject our our story. There will be those who refuse to accept our testimony because they do not recognize our authority or the authority of the Word of God. Well, that was a problem with this situation here with Jesus' family, Jesus' friends. They didn't recognize, they didn't accept the fact that he was the Son of God. They questioned his authority. Notice also in verses 3 and 4, not only were people questioning his authority, but they were offended by his authority. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And by the way, we shouldn't, three of those names are names of the, uh, the apostles. We shouldn't get those confused. They're not the same people. But they go, he goes on to say, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Jesus saith unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Some were offended by Jesus' authority because they thought of him only as one of their own. John tells us he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now that's speaking of the Jews in general, but here we have an example. We came unto his own family, and they received him not as well. You know, Jesus identified three different groups of people here who were offended by him. His own country, those who attempted to kill him. His own kin, those who thought him insane. And his own family, those who were embarrassed by him. So again, he said, these three groups of people, they have chosen to be offended rather than to accept my message. They've chosen to reject this hope I bring to them because they're offended at who I am. What's the basic problem of somebody who's offended? Envy, jealousy. They begrudge Jesus the honor and esteem that was given to him by so many. He had become far more famous than any of them. And most of them had held so much more advantage and promise as children than he. After all, Jesus had a tainted reputation. There was question as to his mother and father's relationship. Of course, we know Joseph was not his physical father. His father was God. But people talk. Rumors circulate. Opinions are passed around. And a lot of people look down at Jesus because of this very thing. 
And now all of a sudden he leaves town and in their eyes he becomes famous. Well known. Well received. They didn't like it. They resented his claims so much so that they rejected his message of hope. You know, one thing God abhors is envy. Resenting the gifts of others. When somebody receives something, a blessing, some goodness, do we rejoice with them? Or do we step back and say, why wasn't that me? Envy and jealousy. It'll get the better of us. Someone who's envious or jealous expects the gifts to be bestowed upon them. God expects the gifts he gives to be used for his honor and his glory. He expects us to do so that all might be encouraged and blessed. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? And if thou hadst not received it? 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Charity suffereth long, it is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, and is not puffed up. What a reminder not to be jealous, not to be envious of others. Galatians 5.26, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. All how we ought to follow the admonition of Scripture and prefer others above ourselves. People were offended. They were offended because of his authority. They didn't think he deserved to be in that position. It's funny, someone says envy shoots at others and wounds herself. So true it is. When you allow jealousy to get a hold of your heart, you're not hurting anybody but yourself. The third characteristic we see in identifying rejection was not only did they question his authority, not only were they offended by his authority and reputation, but they disbelieved his message, his authority. We see that in verses 5 and 6. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he had laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. The refusal of some to believe Jesus was the Christ blocked God's power for the whole community. I believe their obstinate unbelief, questioning, rumors, and repulsion toward Jesus kept most people away. Because notice, we see here in Scripture that only a few folks were healed. He says that right in verse 5. Save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk. This envy, this jealousy, this despising this man having this reputation, disbelieving he was the Son of God, it prevented people from gathering. Remember, when he went to Capernaum, so many people gathered in the house that they just flocked around it and people couldn't make their way through the street. Everywhere Jesus went, he was surrounded by a throng of people. Here in his hometown, people were encouraged to stay away. Isn't it sad that a person's unbelief affects and influences others. It keeps others away from Christ. What an awful accounting of the family, neighbors, and countrymen of Christ. They encouraged people to stay away from him rather than coming to him. 
You know, most people are proud when somebody in their hometown makes a name for himself. You drive through towns all across the country, and there's a sign saying, this is the home of so-and-so. And they list his accomplishment or her accomplishment or something like that. People like to brag on somebody in their, their community that's done well, that's become famous, that's made a name for themselves. Not these folks. <laughs> they were, they were, their, their attitude was, don't say anything, don't tell anybody, it's him again. He's here. You see, they didn't believe him, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. And as a result, they wanted him silenced to avoid embarrassment and shame. How tragic. Jesus addressed this attitude in Matthew 23, verse 13, when he said, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer them that are entering to go in. Notice the words here in verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. The word unbelief, it means an unwillingness to be persuaded, willful unbelief, or obstinance. In the New Testament, it's used to identify those who oppose the gracious offer of salvation, who oppose the word of God, and who oppose the purpose of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 states this. This is Paul's testimony. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. But notice, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious? But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Unbelief causes people to place their ignorance on demonstration when it comes to their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. First of all, if somebody doesn't believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they're not saved. And in that context, everything they say, they say about him has to be taken with that thought in mind. They do not know him. They are in ignorance because of their unbelief. And that word ignorance isn't meant to be an insulting word. It's an identifying word to help us to know where that person stands in connection to the Lord. Jesus said, I marveled because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3.18 states, And to whom swear he that ye should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It is unbelief that keeps someone from entering into heaven. It's not because someone has stolen, or lied, or cheated, or killed. No, it's because they don't believe Jesus is the Christ. That's the only sin that keeps somebody out of heaven. Those others are are sins that God forgives. They're sins that Jesus addressed on the cross. Because every one of us stood in that position. We were in that same boat. Sinners opposed to the grace of God. But when we saw ourselves lost and on our way to hell, we threw aside our unbelief. 
and trusted in him. Lord, I believe you. However you stated it at the time of your conversion. It is the idea, the concept, it is the fact that you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. Unbelief became belief. Doubt was turned to certainty. But there was this crowd there who refused to believe. How tragic. One author wrote, They had his presence, his wisdom, and the testimony of his mighty works. They had his power to help them in all their need, yet they stayed away from his meetings. They would not come to him. Their pride contributed to their unbelief, and they refused to trust in him. You know, it's an amazing thing to think. Anyone would ever reject the wondrous gift of salvation freely offered to whosoever will. For salvation delivers mankind from sin, death, and judgment to come. What a wonderful, wonderful gift that is. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 15, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. Much like in the days of Job, Job 21, 14, wherein he declared, Therefore say they unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What a tragic statement. But that is the case of everyone today who does not receive Jesus Christ as his or her Savior. I desire not the knowledge of thy way. Horatius Bonar years ago said, All unbelief is the belief of a lie. More recently, someone has stated it this way. Unbelief is believing anything other than the Bible. So true. Well, those three ways are ways in which this passage helps us to recognize rejection. So what was Jesus' response to that? Notice verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the village's teaching. First, we note, he accepted their decision to reject him. I believe it grieved him, but Jesus accepted that decision. He wouldn't force himself upon them, so he left town and traveled to other areas surrounding Nazareth. You see, Jesus is desirous that people would gladly receive him, not forcibly become his children. Christianity doesn't force someone to become a follower with the threat of death. It's a gift that's freely offered and to be freely received. Luke 8, 40, and it came to pass when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him. Acts 2, 41, then they that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
Notice that in leaving, there is no record here or the other Gospels that Jesus took parting shots on the way out of town. He gave no words of condemnation, criticism, or contempt. He neither cursed the unbelieving crowd nor declared them unfit for heaven. He simply left. You know, humanly speaking, we have a tendency to burn bridges, don't we? So I never want to see you again. You treat me that way, I never want to talk to you again. I never want to hear you again. If I see you before I die, that'll be too soon. We have that attitude when somebody doesn't accept us, when they reject what we have to say. Jesus didn't do that on the way out of town. No. What's the deal? Even though he had been rejected by family, neighbors, and friends, he knew there was still hope that one day they would come to know the truth. Did all of us receive the message of salvation the first time we heard it? No, I doubt so. Time and time again, God allowed us to hear until the point where our heart was softened and we recognized our need to trust in him. And I believe that was the case here. Acts chapter 12, verse 17. This is an interesting verse of scripture. But he, Peter, this is after he was freed from prison, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. In that verse, we meet the man who is the real leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. It was James, a brother of our Lord, a stepbrother. James was in that crowd that day when Jesus came into Nazareth and had to leave because of people's unbelief. See, James and his brothers, they weren't a big supporter of Jesus throughout his life. But the Lord appeared to James after the resurrection According to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and after that he was seen of James, then of the apostles. The Holy Spirit of God did a work in that man's heart. He became a pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Had Jesus cursed him and run him down and mocked him and turned his back on him when he left the city of Nazareth, it's doubtful James ever would have become a follower of the Lord. But time passed and he became a great spokesman for the wondrous gift of salvation. You see, it's the Holy Spirit of God that convicts and convinces the heart of men and women to be saved. It's the Holy Spirit of God that has to do the work. Not the clever manipulation, sincere persuasion, or aggressive intimidation that we might use in our tactics to convince someone to become a Christian. No. It's God and God alone who moves on the heart of mankind. And God had to do a work in the heart of James. Christ, foreknowing that, simply left the city of Nazareth and passed on, moved on. And then notice what he did when he left. Verse 6, it goes on to say, He marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the village's teaching. If we continue on in the text, we see he instructed the apostles to go out, sending them out on a preaching campaign, giving them power over unclean spirits and things. So it's interesting. Jesus went on teaching, training, and doing the will of God. Just because somebody doesn't want to hear what we have to say, 
Just because they reject the message of hope we bear doesn't mean we need to shrivel up and die. Doesn't mean we need to throw in a towel and give up and say it's not worth it. Oh no, there's a whole other crowd out there. Nazareth was one little town in the entire country of Palestine. There were hundreds and hundreds of places to go. Jesus said, okay, I did what I could do here. I'm going to continue going on. For he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. We note in Matthew 9.35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Luke 13.22, as he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He didn't let their, their rejection discourage him. So how should we respond? The same way. It doesn't matter whether or not somebody accepts your invitation to receive Christ as Savior. It doesn't matter if they believe that your testimony, that you were lost and now you're saved. It doesn't matter if they reject everything that we hold dear. We have a task before us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's easy to lose sight of the task at hand when we focus on those who reject our message and will not receive Christ as their Savior. But we still have the admonition, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Colossians 3, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 13, 21, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. We can focus on the crowd out there that says, I don't believe it, I don't want it, get away. Or we can focus on the one who redeemed us and has given us a home in glory. And say, Lord, I will continue to tell others until you return. We are to never lose sight of the task before us. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Somebody said, God's grace is your greatest motivation to service. And has not God graciously bestowed so much upon us as recipients of His goodness? I'll close with this illustration. It, in a way, depicts one who faithfully served while enduring rejection. In the 1840s, John Getty left the pastorate of a church in Canada to take his wife and two small children to the South Sea Islands to begin a mission work there. After a voyage of more than 20,000 miles, they arrived in the New Hebrides Islands at Anetium. The island chain was filled with cannibals, and more than 20 crew members of a British ship had been killed and eaten just months before the Gettys arrived on that field. They faced the difficulty of learning a language that had no written form, and they also faced the constant threat of being killed. Slowly at first, a few converts came, 
And then soon, many more received the gospel. Getty continued his ministry faithfully, including the translating of the entire Bible into the native language and planting 25 churches. For many of those years, he faced constant rejection, threat, and fear. He labored with little help and seldom received a word from home. But God was faithful. In the pulpit of the church Getty pastored for so many years stands a plaque in honor of his service which says, He landed in 1848. There were no Christians here. When he left in 1872, there were no heathen. We may find ourselves needing to take a stand without anyone else on our side. Rejecting, opposing, disagreeing, declining our offer. Whatever the case, we have the responsibility to be a faithful servant of the Lord, continually witnessing of Christ and being that voice crying in the wilderness. God, help us in the midst of rejection to be faithful to the task at hand.